This is Legends Territory, Scotty Braun, AJ Pierzynski, and thanks to our MLB Players Alumni Association fam for hooking up this little conversation. If you're watching this on YouTube, you can also find this in podcast form. Just search Legends Territory. And let's bring in our Hall of Fame guest, inducted in 2014 after 22 seasons, two Cy Young Awards, a 10-time All-Star, four-time Silver Slugger, and 1995 World Series MVP, the great Tom Glavin on with us right now on Legends Territory. Glav, how you doing, man? I'm well. How are you guys doing? Pretty good living the life watching you watch Braves games this year, which <laughs> is quite fun and maybe a little reminiscent of what you experienced for a lot of your career, right? You know, um, yes, in some ways. Um, you know, in terms of uh, the success they're having day in and day out, yeah, there's there's some similarities. But uh, I think that maybe the overall structure of the teams is a little bit different. Um, you know, a lot of those teams I played on, was we were built uh, around pitching, and, and some of them had really good offensive teams. Uh, I think this current edition of the Braves is – uh, a tremendous offensive team, um, and they have uh, good enough pitching. Um, so, you know, they're fun to watch. Look, I think that um, arguably one of, if not the best lineups uh, in baseball, I mean, they're doing some historic things right now and, and um, you know, just amazing how deep that lineup is and when everybody's rolling, how tough it is to fit for opposing pitchers to pitch to them. So, um, you know, I think it's a little bit more offense first, um, pitching and defense secondary, as opposed to some of the teams I was on, like I said, that were, were more pitching, pitching and defense first and um, had enough offense to go along with it. So which one would you rather have? I mean, you guys only uh, have three <laughs> Hall of Fame pitchers, right? And you uh, and Maddox well, said chicks dig, hey, chicks dig the long ball. They don't, look, they don't dig the 20-game winners, okay? So there's a no, famous they don't. commercial no. of you two over there doing they, curls and, you know, benching. You and yeah. Mad Dog, so I mean – Chicks do dig the long ball. The 20 game winner is not that sexy. The home run is. So, um, you know, I don't listen. I'll tell you right now, uh, and I've said it often on broadcasts, um, how nice it would be to go to the mound as a starting pitcher, knowing that if you give up five runs or less, you have a really good chance of winning that game. Um, it's a nice luxury. And, and I think that it's it goes a long way towards um, having those those guys go out there to, to, to pitch these games for the Braves to relax a little bit. I know. You know, I know for me, even when our and some of those teams I was playing on, when our offense was rolling, uh, you know, you didn't worry about giving up a couple of runs early. You, you knew you guys were going to get going. They were going to pick you up. They were going to score some runs. So uh, just keep them in the game. And then there were other times, you know, as you know, AJ, where your offense is not going very well. And you're like, my God, if I give up one run, I'm going to lose. So, um, you know, it, it has its ebbs and flows. But I think for the most part with this team right now, if, if you're a starting pitcher, you go out there and give up four or less, you've got a really good chance of winning. I've heard from a smart, well-respected former teammate of yours that Ronald Acuna Jr. might just be the most talented player to ever wear a Braves uniform. That's Chipper. Would you agree? Um, I mean, you know, it's it's look at it. It's I'm not going to sit here and say not, um, but you know, look at when you've got uh, a guy like Chipper Jones, Hall of Famer. You got a guy like uh, Hank Aaron. Uh, you got a guy, you know, like go on down the list with Hall of Famers. I have a little bit of a hard time maybe going all the way there. Um, you know, look, it, it's right now, maybe, uh, will the body of work um, prove that out? I guess we'll see. But look at there's, you know, we talk all the time about five tool players in baseball. And I think sometimes we use that term um, a little too, um, 
liberally maybe. Uh, Ronald is certainly one of those guys. You know, he, he plays tremendous defense. He's got a great arm. He steals bases. He hits. He hits for power. So, you know, he does it all. And I know, um, you know, we talk often on broadcasts about other guys in the game. And, and you know, certainly Otani is, is in the conversation with Ronald. But, you know, there are guys in the game that can do some of the things that Ronald can do. But I can't think of anybody in the game that can do all of the things that Ronald can do. Uh, so he's a, he's a pretty special player, but, um, I don't know. I, I, that's lofty praise from Chipper and I'm not going to argue with Chipper, but, um, for me, he's got a little ways to go to, uh, to, to get into that all the way into that conversation. Glav, all you got to say is I got four silver sluggers. Okay. When he gets to four, (laughs) five silver sluggers, then he's going to pass me as one of the most talented guys in a Braves uniform. Right. I mean, if you're Tom Glavin, you're like 10 time all-star. You know, he's got World Series, Cy Young, four silver sluggers. You know, he's got a, he's got a way to go just to pass you. I, th- I, th- I don't think he's going to have any problems passing me on the silver slugger mark. But, um, you know, again, he's, uh, he's pretty good. I can't, I can't deny that. I mean, like I said, <laughs> uh, you know, it, it's hard. You know, it's similar to, you know, like even, even judging teams, right? Everybody wants to compare this team to some of the teams I played on. And, you know, look. I could probably sit here and argue with you and say that uh, out of all the teams I played on, our 91 team, our 98 team, I'm sorry, was maybe the best team that we were a part of and, and maybe even arguably that 93 team. Um, but neither one of those teams won a World Series. The 95 team did. So, you know, that's kind of the, the standard for me when you're comparing teams. I mean, nothing compares to a, a world championship. So um, that's kind of where I'm at with it with ronald again he's a great player arguably the best player in the game right now um just you know maybe maybe a little ways to go to to put him in chipper and hank aaron's company overall do you ever sit back with smolty and maddox and i've been friends with john for a long time but do you guys ever say when you're together like damn i wish we won more like we should have won more or you're like hey we won one i mean the goal is to win a world series when you're you know aspiring to play the game and then when you're in the game no, no, I, I don't think there's any question that we, that we, of course, we have those conversations. I mean, when you get to, you know, to five World Series and, and have the success that we had in terms of winning our division and getting into the playoffs every year, yeah, you, you, you know, you wish you won more. And, and, you know, looking back at it, I mean, you know, when I look at the, the World Series we won versus the ones that we lost, aside from the 99 series with the Yankees, uh, those other series, you know, you're, you're talking about the, the, the difference between winning and losing is so minuscule. Um, you know, it boils down to a pitch made somewhere, a key base hit somewhere, a defensive play somewhere. Um, you know, when I look back again at the series that we won, we did those things. We, we made key defensive plays. We got clutch hits. We got clutch pitching. Uh, the years that we lost, um, you know, some of those things didn't, didn't happen that way. And, and, you know, the margin of, of uh, victory, so to speak, in that 91 and, and 92 series with Minnesota and Toronto w- were minuscule. Um, you know, and then I think the one that we all look back at and, and feel like we let get away from us was 96, you know, to go up and win two games in New York uh, against the Yankees and come home and, and then end up getting swept the next four games. I mean, that was extremely disappointing. And, you know, even in, even in that series, you know, we had a a bad break on a blooper that fell in and started a big inning. We had, I remember Paul O'Neill making an unbelievable play on, uh, on a, 
on a line drive in the gap that Louis Polonia hit that, you know, would have been either a game tying or put us in the lead late. So, you know, those are the things that don't go your way, but, um, you know, I mean, look, we get that question all the time, right. And, and I think we all wish we won at least one more, but at the same time as a player, you know, you want to have a chance every year and we did, you know, and, and, you know, I say to people all the time, would you have rather had, the 92-93 Toronto Blue Jays situation where they won back-to-back World Series and then were gone, uh, you didn't hear from them? Or would you rather have your team winning the division every year, getting in the playoffs and having a chance? Um, you know, I I think winning 14 straight division titles is, is arguably harder than winning back-to-back World Series, but that's just my opinion. Tom, I, I grew up a Braves fan uh, forever. Can't, you know, went through the good years. Went through the bad years. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of bad years before 91, right? I mean, I remember Murph. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Murph, Murph was, I was kind a of my guy. a lot of them, yeah. Yes, but Murph was like, Del Murphy yeah. was my guy growing up, you know, living in Florida, TBS. And, and so when you guys made it in 91, it was like shock the world kind of stuff for, sure. for Braves fans, okay? And then Braves fans become spoiled because you win, you win, you win, you win, you win, okay? And then as a Braves, I got to play for the Braves and we were horrible. Okay, so then now they're back at the top. And as a Braves fan, you have to take pride in the 14 titles in a row in one World Series because, hey, you won a World Series. So they can never take that away from you. And I get, you know, you could have won more. But as a Braves fan, and I'm speaking as a fan, the one that hurt the most for me was 91 because I was like, gosh, multi pitched so great. It was unexpected. And then you guys lose in the seventh game. Is there one for you that stands out that you're like, Gosh, this one just hurt worse than the other ones. Uh, I, that's certainly if it's not one, it's one A. Um, you know, like I said, the Yankees series in '96. Man, we had a chance to go, you know, back to back, and you know, going into New York and 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 stealing two games up there, and that was kind of the coming out party for Andrew Jones, and and you know, it was just, you know, you couldn't have asked for a better situation, and then it and then it fell apart. Um, but to your point. You know, I still, I will still tell you in many ways, obviously winning the World Series in, in 95 uh, is the pinnacle of what you're trying to do. And, 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 you know, there's no better feeling. The only way that could have felt any better is if it was 91. Because um, to your point, for us to come from where we had come as an organization um, in the long run, in the short term, um, you know, a team that we thought we were going to be competitive that year, kind of get back into the mix in our divisions. We weren't ready to win our division. Nobody would have told you that. But all of a sudden, here we were. Um, so you talk about, you know, the whole worst to first and the storybook ending and, and all that. And, and you know what? It happened that year. It just happened for the wrong team, right? It happened for the Twins. It didn't happen for us. So um, that to me, um, you know, that one, that one's that one hurts, sure, because like I said, it, it was absolutely a storybook type season uh, other than the ending. I mean, you talk about writing a fairy tale and, you know, this is, you know, the Hollywood script, so to speak. You know, people wouldn't believe it, uh, but we had a chance to live it. It just didn't have the fairy tale ending for us. But, um, you know, it, it, it was, that one probably emotionally uh, was tougher to get over than, than any of the other ones, no question. Was I mentioned Dale Murphy? I know he's still around the Braves, and you guys just had an alumni weekend recently. Shouldn't he be in the Hall of Fame? Because in the 1980s, listen, in the early 80s, I mean, MVPs back to back carried a bad Braves team to the playoffs a couple times. I feel like 
he doesn't get the respect he deserves over the long haul. No, I agree. Um, listen, it's all those factors, right? Back-to-back MVPs, how many guys have done that? Uh, his numbers um, for that era were, you know, at the top of the game. I mean, you talk about guys who uh, so often uh, the criteria is not only statistically, but did they dominate their era? Were they one of the best players of their era? I think Murph certainly uh, checks that box as well. Um, and then, you know, go beyond that. Who has been a, a more upstanding representative of the game of baseball than Murph? I mean, there's not a nicer guy on the planet. Uh, he, you know, he was that, uh, you know, wholesome, uh, you know, that, you know, that's the kind of guy you want your daughter to bring home and tell you that she's dating. Right. I mean, that, that's Murph. And, um, I think all those things combined, uh, make him the kind of guy that you would be honored to have in the hall of fame alongside you. So look, I'm hoping, I'm hoping he gets in there eventually. Uh, again, I think his numbers warrant it. Um, and I know for me, uh, again, you talk about, being the guy in your era, you know, my first three years in the big leagues, nobody came to see the Atlanta Braves. They came to see Dale Murphy. Uh, and, and that's saying something. So obviously it's a guy that you respected. And I didn't want to ask this. I didn't. So I'm just saying, glad uh, okay. you're, friend, you're right. a friend. So I just want you to know, I didn't want to ask this. I'm letting Scott handle this. It, it's, it's a billion years later. When, when, when he's on the other side, you, you and his squad had some beef for a little bit going with the Phillies. It was like, yeah. I mean, Dale, I, I believe it was Dale Murphy appreciation night. And there was like a little brawl then. And then it kept carrying for a few weeks yep. after that. It was, uh, you know, it was an interesting situation. So, you know, we had a brawl um, with Philadelphia in Atlanta and, you know, uh, Otis Nixon charged Wally Ritchie and, uh, things got crazy. So we went, we went to Philadelphia. If it wasn't the next weekend, it was shortly thereafter. Um, and we fully expected that Otis was going to get hit. Uh, we had talked about it, you know, going to get hit. Let's just take it, move on and, and go about our business. Well, Friday night's game happened and Otis didn't get hit Saturday night. Otis didn't get hit. Now here we are Sunday, Otis first pitch of the eighth inning gets drilled by Roger McDowell. And I'm sitting there on the bench and I see Bobby get up and he's walking my way. And I knew exactly what he was going to say. He's like, he's like, glad you got to hit Murph. And I was like, Bobby, come on. I said, let me, let me get Murph out. Let me hit the second hitter was Charlie Hayes. I think I said, let me hit Charlie. He's like, no, no, you got to hit Murph. You got to hit Murph. So I was like, you know, all right. And now mind you, again, when I got to the big leagues, you know, Murph, Murph was my guy. I mean, he took me under his wing like he did every young player, you know, kind of showed you the ropes, how to go about your business, how to do all those things. Um, and he was Mr. Atlanta Brave, you know. So for me to have to hit him obviously was not a great situation. And I, you know, I tried, um, missed him on the first one. And then, you know, he kind of looked at me and knew what was going on. And, and by, the, I think, the third pitch, before I even got it out of my hand, he was just about out of the batter's box. So, um, you know, it was one of those things that was, I, you know, in hindsight, I did not handle it as well as I should have. I should have just hit him and been done with it. Um, but you know, it was one of those things that again, at the time, uh, you know, I was a young guy and here's this Atlanta legend and trust me, I didn't hit him. And, but the amount of fan mail I got after that, that just ripped me a new one from Braves fans. Like, who are you to be throwing at Dale Murphy? And I mean, it was just, you know, it was, it was crazy, but you know, I guess the, so the whole scenario is funny. I was 
you know, when I came back to the Braves in 08, Roger McDowell was the pitching coach. And we were sitting in the, one of the offices at the ballpark during a rain delay. And, and the, one of the clubhouse kids pulled that video up and showed it. And, and, you know, I said to Roger, I said, you know, you're the only guy that's ever caused me to get thrown out of a game. And now here you are, my pitching coach. He's like, yeah, well, he said, you know, the story behind that was we went into that series fully expecting to hit Otis. And he said, given the makeup of our pitching staff, he said, I told Wally Ritchie, he said, if nobody gets him, when I get in the game, whenever that is, I'll get him. Well, Roger didn't get in the game till Sunday in the eighth inning. Uh, so he fulfilled a promise. So <laughs> that's kind of why I waited. That's kind of why it took so long to get him. Did you and Murph talk after that? Did you call him and say, hey, Murph, man, I'm sorry, I was, I was forced, Bobby, you know, put it all on Bobby's shoulders? Like, hey, it was Bobby, it was his fault. <laughs> no, we did, because, you know, you remember Philadelphia in those days. Well, I, mean, I don't know if you do or you don't. You may not have played, I played at the vet. In the old I played vet. at the vet. Okay, so the old, yeah, the old vet, you know, where you come out of your clubhouses and you're in the tunnel and you kind of both have to walk to the same elevator to get out of there. Um, as I was walking out, Murph was over in the tunnel by our locker room. So he grabbed me and we talked and he, you know, he said, look, I understand what's going on. I, I know what was going on and, you know, no hard feelings, no big deal, whatever. So he was, he was good about it. Okay. That's good. Did he know that you have a hockey background when he charged the mound? Does he know you were drafted? Uh, he probably like, did. I mean, you were drafted <laughs> ahead of Brett Hall. You were drafted ahead of, I mean, some hall of fame guys here. I mean, did he know that, you know, you were yeah, like, but, you know, the gloves and let's go. Uh, I mean, Murph's a big guy, so he, he's got a, you know, he had a size advantage on me. Now, I probably would have felt comfortable taking him on on skates. I don't know about taking him on in sneakers. That might have been a different problem. <laughs> <laughs> Do you ever wonder what life would be like if you just said, screw baseball, I'm just going to be a hockey player and see what happens? I, I do. It's hard not to. I mean, you know, look, as an 18-year-old kid, you get drafted by two sports. I mean, you know, it's like I say all the time, you talk about a week where I was really digging myself. I mean, my God, I got 18 years old. I got drafted by two sports. I mean, how much better can it get than that? Um, but, you know, I think I obviously know I made the right decision and, and, you know, not even because of how things worked out, but I think because how things worked out, it just solidifies it, obviously. But, you know, I, I knew that given the two sports look i was a left-handed pitcher and i had an advantage in baseball because of that that i didn't have in hockey i mean i was six feet tall 175 pounds coming out of high school and every guy in the nhl was that and maybe bigger so i i was you know average joe so to speak physically uh in a hockey uniform and i was a lefty in a baseball uniform so i just felt like that was something i needed to try and make use of and um, it worked out and certainly don't second guess it, but I, yeah, I always wonder what would happen. Um, I mean, you know, truth be told, if you were to really pin me down, I probably would have told you that I liked hockey better than baseball. And, and I think that's why, that's why I liked pitching because when you pitch, you're in the action, you're part of it. It, it go, it centers around you. Uh, and that was the feeling I always had playing hockey. I mean, when you step on the ice, you're in it, you're in the action. And, and I like that part about it. So, um, you know, and I was honestly a much more polished, uh, better hockey player coming out of high school than I was a pitcher and coming out of high school as a pitcher, I had a good arm and, and I would categorize myself now all these years later, looking at myself in high school, I was a thrower. I didn't, I didn't, you know, my idea of a changeup, like most kids in high school is, well, let me try to throw this next pitch harder than I threw the last one. And, and, you know, that's, that's how I changed speeds. I didn't know what I was doing. I just had a good arm. 
did Deion Sanders give you shit being like, hey, dude, you could have just done both, you know? <laughs> you, you pitch you pitch one day-ish a week, you know? And then you got a few days when the seasons overlap to go get your body smashed around by, you know, Scott Stevens and Ken Danico and then come back. Well, see, the difference for Dion, you know, and we always used to give him a hard time about it, but, you know, I, I remember Abe, Avery was the king, but he would give Dion so much crap, like, you know, dude, how hard is it for you to play? Nobody throws the ball at you, and you don't have to tackle anybody. So you're ju- you're just on the field, like running around. Nobody's no nobody's trying to do anything to you. So it's really not that big a deal. Um, but no, I mean, look at I honestly in, in my mind, I thought about it, but you know, you got that pretty good overlap, and you know, end of September, October, and then certainly the whole off season would have been taken up playing hockey, and that probably wouldn't have boded well for me preparing for for the following baseball season. So that would have uh, that would have been a little bit tough. I never never gave that serious consideration. Glav, do you ever give shit – forget Dion. Do you ever give shit to Jeff Francoeur, your TV partner, and say, hey, dude, I know you were All a the time. football player, but I got drafted in two sports and you didn't. I think Dion t- would take it better than Frenchie because Frenchie would get all mad and be like, well, you know, he'd start ah, – and just lose control and just get mad and walk away. Yeah, you know, he, he – uh... You know, we're doing that uh, broadcast again with the four of us in the booth on uh, on Wednesday, and and you know, it came up last night, and and uh, you know, Jeff Jeff still likes to throw out there that he's in the uh, Georgia Sports Hall of Fame for football, and uh, or the Georgia High School Football Hall of Fame, whatever it is, I don't even know. Uh, but you know, football is king down here, so you know, I think because of that, that that makes anybody who played football feel like they have bragging rights over everybody else. So. Um, you know, listen, I love Jeff and, and, uh, we've, we've had a great time doing games together. So that I give him that one. I don't, you know, I don't, I don't give him a hard time about that. I let him have that one. And just, I just know what I have in my back pocket on him. I know a little about your relationship with Maddox and with Smoltz and having two hall of famers to play with for a good chunk of time, which is awesome. And so unique still to this day. I was texting Smoltz just now. I was like, yo, give me something good. Anything to mess with Clab. And he's <laughs> like, you know, it's amazing. He goes, he played his whole career without a blip, no embarrassing moment. He said it's unreal. So, cause I know the others maybe have more than you do. My question is then was there, a healthy rivalry and what's the line because you guys gave each other shit but you also i think worked out together played golf together there was so much and you guys were all so competitive so what was the dynamic like um you know it was it was it was really special and you know we were we were so fortunate uh, to have had that opportunity you know i look at today's game and i don't think there's any chance uh, in today's game, you keep three guys like that together for as long as we were together. I think we pitched for 10 plus years together. Um, and I just think economically in today's game that that's not happening. So uh, we were fortunate that we were able to do it. But listen, you know, we we had such a great friendship and such a great bond um, that we gave each other shit virtually all day, every day. Um, but it never it never centered around pitching or how we were doing individually um, as pitchers in a given year, I mean, that was always off limits. You know, we'd, we'd give each other crap about hitting or uh, our fielding or our golf game or you name it. Um, that was, you know, that was just the way that it was. And I mean, until this day, I think, you know, Smolty is the guy that kind of drives a lot of that banter. Um, and, and I think Greg and I jump in um, as, as, it, as we see fit. Um, but I think that's the great thing about it is we always have that, that – 
that situation where when we're around each other, we're, we're ragging on each other nonstop, but uh, none of us takes it personally. We know it's all in fun. And, and at the end of the day, everything's great. And, um, you know, I, I maintain a couple of things. I think being around those guys, having them in the rotation with me made me better uh, because they, you know, when you're around guys like that, you drive each other, you motivate each other. Um, you know, never a situation where, hey, I want to have a better year than that guy. I want to be the guy. I think we all knew in any given year we were, you know, quote unquote, that guy or at any given point in time during a season. You know, if we had the hot hand, maybe we're that guy. But, um, you know, I think it was more, you know, if, if Smoltzy went out the night before me and threw a three hit shutout, I wanted to go out the next night and throw a two hit shutout. I mean, that was the kind of motivation we had. Um, having those guys in the rotation with me, I think made me better because it helps you relax. You know, I think a lot of guys, a lot of guys talk about wanting to be a number one starter, but they don't understand the pressure that goes along with that. Uh, you better go out there and win when it's your turn. You're the guy, you're the stud, you better make it happen. And when you're in a rotation with two, two or three other guys, it could easily be the number one. You don't have that sense. You know, you just kind of go out there and pitch knowing that I'm going to do my thing. And if I have a bad night tonight, then John or Greg coming on, coming in behind me the next night is going to pick us up and, and we're going to get things back on track. That's why we never had very many, if any, you know, four game losing streaks uh, because that was the situation. But, um, you know, and it was always tremendously helpful. I think all of us obviously knew our mechanics really well. Uh, but there were times where when you get out of sync and I know for me personally, you get out of sync a little bit and I was a big feel guy. If I can't feel what I'm doing, uh, then it's hard to fix it. And, you know, to be able to go on the bench during a game and say, Hey, Greg, John, I feel like I'm doing this. Can you watch for this or, or, or whatever. And then to have that feedback of, yeah, you know what? I see that. Or no, I don't see that. You know, it, it, it just helps you to, you know, cross things off and, and, and move on and try to figure out what's going on if it's not going well. So, um, and then, you know, the off the field stuff, I, I think for all of us being able to play golf as much as we did and having that outlet away from the game, I think it added years to all of our careers. I really do. Um, you know, AJ, you know, what? it's a, it's a grind, you know, and 162 games and traveling and whatever, and, and you have to have some kind of outlet. And for us, it was golf. Um, but it never got in the way of, of us, you know, doing what we needed to do, get, to get ready for our next start. Blav, you know this, and, and I know this because we've played in many a golf tournament. With I've been lucky enough to play with you, Maddox, and Smoltz in the same golf tournament. If you ever want to piss John off, just beat him in one of those because that would end – I mean, that would be the ultimate trash dog. If you beat him one day – if you were a bad dog, beat him one day in one of those, That I don't know that he, he might spontaneously just combust because that's he like might. his thing. Right? I mean, you know this and I know this, but people out there don't understand how competitive John Smoltz is, especially with golf. No, 100%. I mean, I think uh, there have been a couple of times where I've been close to beating him uh, in a couple of those tournaments. And, and you know, his hair's on fire. What literally has is it's on fire because uh, he like that's if, if his his goal is to win the tournament. His secondary goal is to be, beat me or Greg, whoever's around that. That's you know, that's the thing. And I remember like the second or third year I played in the Orlando tournament, which was previously the Diamond Resorts and, and now Hilton Grand Vacations. I had a chance to beat him and I had to make a birdie putt, I think on the, on the 18th hole was, no, maybe I had a chance to tie him, but I, no, I had a chance to beat him in points and I had to make a birdie putt on the 18th hole. And I've got like a 15 foot birdie putt on the 18th hole. And I look up and there he is on the fringe of the green, like hovering over me, like you better not make this putt. 
you know, and I'm like, <laughs> dude, get out of here. I'm just trying to make a pot, you know, and of course, you know, I didn't make the pot, but you know, you talk about the big sigh of relief. I mean, that would have, that would have been devastating to John had I made that putt and beat him. Well, he did steal, you know, he stole Greg Olson as his caddy. So I don't know why you were Maddox, you know, he yeah. stole him from you guys. I mean, I don't know why he picks to go with John instead of you two. But has Greg Maddox I, ever – were you ever a part – we're going to – of any of the hijinks with Greg Maddox. He's legendary for the hijinks. Yeah, I mean, I've, you've seen it. I've seen it all, you know. Um, you know, I mean, things that happen maybe in the shower or things that he does <laughs> to, to people in the locker room or, you know, um, like he would – you know, we would, every time we'd go golfing somewhere, if we didn't have a car service, Smoltz would run a car and he'd drive. And, and Maddox found it really fun anytime we were driving around in New York City or somewhere like that. If, you know, you're stopped at a light and you got the throng of people coming across the street in the crosswalk, Greg would lay on the, reach over from the passenger seat and lay on the horn. And of course, everybody's looking at John and flipping John off and, you know, stuff like that. So Greg, all, all of, most of Greg's stuff was fairly innocent, but, um, you you absolutely had to have your head on a swivel around Greg because there was no telling what he was going to do. That's a new one. I didn't hear the, the car one. one. Andrew Jones obviously said avoid the shower and avoid the sanitaries. Yes. Yeah, and yeah, you know, I saw him. I, I'll give you one, and he probably won't be happy. But <laughs> we were in uh, we were in spring training, and Walt Weiss's locker was next to mine in spring training, and his locker was next to mine in Atlanta. And it was like the last two or three days of spring training. Greg went to the bathroom and came back and grabbed one of Walt's T-shirts and used it to clean himself and put it back, put it, put it back in Walt's locker. So we get back to Atlanta for the start of the year. And like the second day we're back, Walt comes in from batting practice and he's got this look on his face and he, and I'm like, Walt, what's wrong? And he's like, something in my locker smells like shit. It's like, it doesn't, it, something stinks. So he's rummaging around and I'm laughing because I know what happened and, you know, I'm not saying anything. And sure enough, you know, Walt finds a t-shirt and then the first thing out of his mouth is Maddox, you know, <laughs> he wanted to kill him. So, um, that was, uh, it was not out of the question for Greg. Hey, don't mess with Walt Weiss, dude. He's like dude, a jujitsu black belt badass. Like he will fuck you up. Uh, Did anyone uh, ever try and you know, uh, mess yeah. with Maddox then? Like, or get him? Well, not even just get him back, but but like actually get pissed off. Or did you have to explain like he does this to everyone? He's got seniority. Just let it happen. Move on, and he'll pick on the next person. I think the only guy that I ever saw do it in a serious way was Darren Holmes. You know, we got Darren Holmes in a trade one year, and and he came over. Um, and it was like right after the first game and we were in the shower and I remember him turning to Maddox and saying, essentially, I don't give a shit who you are. You do anything to me in here. I'm going to drop you. And that was the only guy that I really ever saw <laughs> that kind of confronted <laughs> Greg about it. I think, there, I think everybody else just tried to avoid it. Dude, Darren Holmes, like a nice guy. He's still coaching, too. Yeah. <laughs> He's still yeah. coaching in the big leagues. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's a super nice yeah. guy. He heard the rumors, and he was like, well, not me. <laughs> well, remember we had Smoltz on, okay? And Smoltz yeah. said he was better to be the the, the helper, right? The aide. Yes. So he would always try to be the associate. He would distract yes. the guy because then he knew Maddox wouldn't get him. So he was always on the lookout to be the associate to, to, so it wouldn't happen to him. That's, that's a smart play by Smoltz. 
Of course, yeah. He he tried to stay out of it. But listen, Smolsey was every bit the prankster. Um, maybe not as gross as Greg. Um, but listen, Smolsey was not going to let an opportunity to mess with you go by. I can tell you that. We'll swing right back to Legends territory in a sec. Let's shout out our good friends that hook us up with the sweetest shades in the biz. Yes, Shady Rays, who we are excited to be partnered with for this run of Legends territory. Do you want world-class products without paying your ass off? These are your guys right here, okay? If you like what you're seeing right now, but you feel like you shouldn't be paying at ridiculous prices for polarized sunglasses that look good, that give you all of the style, all of the protection from the sun for your eyes. This is where you need to be looking. Plus, it's not just about how you look, but how you're treated, which is important here with FT and with LT and with everything that's a part of the Foul Territory group and the Legends Territory shows is if you have a problem like you lost or broke your shades, we don't need to have a whole talk show about it, okay? I like how AJ is really contributing here. <laughs> I'm just looking good in my shady rays. Oh, now that I took them off, I can contribute. Thank you. Actually, I liked what you were doing. Just just shaking your head, agreeing with everything I say, which is rare. I'll go back to that. <laughs> but if you lose or break a pair, even on day one, they will send you a brand new pair, no questions asked. That is part of the lost and broken replacements plan. And also, Shady Rays has a great setup for receiving shades and maybe you're not into them within the first 30 days cool return them they'll get you something new or they'll refund what you've got so lots of ways to be taken care of by the best in the biz shady rays and we want to remind all of our watchers listeners of legends territory that you too can be like aj pierzynski exclusively for Legends Territory watchers and listeners, Shady Rays is giving out their best deal this season at ShadyRays.com. Use the code FOUL, F-O-U-L, for 50% off two-plus pairs of polarized sunglasses. Try for yourself the shades rated five stars by over 250,000 people. AJ, you nailed it. Back to Legends Territory. Let me take you to one of your current roles. We talked about you know Braves TV and all of that. What about being on Baseball Hall of Fame's Board of Directors? What do you do? What are the obligations? Why did you want to be a part of it? Um, I don't. I don't know that I wanted to. Or they just asked me to. So <laughs> it's one of those that um, you know you you have a hard time saying no to when the folks at the Hall of Fame say, "Hey, we think you'd be a good fit on this committee. Um, would you be a part of it?" And, and of course, you know, look, I, I mean, it's an honor, um, obviously, to be in that group and be a part of that group and then to be a part of the group that's, you know, trying to um, preserve and, and move forward and do all those things at the Hall of Fame. I mean, it's a, it's a great honor. So, I mean, I, I think, look, it's a lot of things, right? I mean, over the course of the past year, we've had discussions about, you know, the Veterans Committee and the guys that are on the ballot and how are we going to, uh, how are we going to continue on with this ballot? Do we need to make changes? Um you know, uh, the voting process itself, uh, you know, we're still doing mail, mail in ballots. Do we need to get, do we need to go digital? Do we need to do some of those things as far as the hall of fame itself is concerned? Uh, some of the exhibits, um, the thing, do we want to update things? Do we want to try this exhibit or that exhibit? So, you know, a lot of it obviously is, um, 
the Hall of Fame itself and, and where it is and where, where we feel like we can go, how we can continue to grow it, um, continue to make it interesting for people. Uh, you know, there's always a fundraising aspect to everything, right? Um, you know, look, the Hall of Fame costs money to, to run, to keep open, to get artifacts, to do all those things. So those are all part of the discussions. Um, you know, it's not, not any, 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 any heavy lifting, so to speak. Uh, but certainly, you know, important things in terms of, of the Hall of Fame itself and, uh, you know, trying to continue to grow it and, and, and keep it fresh and new and interesting for people. What about the BBWAA um, voters uh, and making sure that all of those votes are, are public because it's not, you know, politics or the CIA or some criminal case. Can't we just know? Because ultimately it's like kind of for fun. Can't we just know who the voters are at this point and who they voted for? I know most of them reveal their votes anyway, although most of them, it's like the people that are, you know, covering the sport. Has that ever been discussed? And do you feel like people should be able to just say it with their chest? And be like, hey, here's who I voted for. They don't have to necessarily explain it all because maybe they're out of the game for a while. But don't you think like we should know? We've had discussions about that. Um, you know, there's always the element of, you know, should it just be sports writers? Should you, you know, get more players involved or get players involved? And then, you know, the argument gets back to, well, the players are involved in the Veterans Committee and uh, things of that nature. So, yeah, those are all part of the discussion. Look, I, I don't I can't sit here and tell you exactly why um, we don't know who everybody is or what their votes are, because to your point, it, it comes out eventually. I think um, obviously there is some aspect on the hall of fame side where they don't want guys uh coming out and talking about their vote before you know the announcements are made and things of that nature but um you know look i i think the the problem that a lot of people seem to have is you know this notion that nobody's had you know uh, uh for so long nobody got 100 percent of the vote and and you know what was why why that what's the point in that and you know, that has everything to do with um, trying to protect some guys down down on people's ballots, right? I mean, some guy might like Scott Rowland, for instance, and say, well, you know what, I know everybody else is going to vote for Jeter, so I'm not going to vote for Jeter. I'm going to vote for Scott Rowland so I can keep him on the ballot because I think eventually he's a Hall of Famer. Um, so some of that stuff goes on, which seems it seems a little bit silly, but, you know, but that's the system. And, and you know, I think that that's part of the discussion is can we can we do that better? Yeah, the strategic voting, I mean, comes up, yeah. right? Like it's, I'm it like, but it just, also makes it the voting, it's the year you get on the ballot. Because if there's a, you know, it's the year you get on and can you stay on long enough? Like some people, I feel like they stay on long enough to where it gets to a year where people just get worn down, right? And then, and you, then they start, yeah, to because pile like, on. you know, yeah. you use a, you, let's use a Burt Blylevin. He got in on his last chance, but he was the same. His numbers didn't change over the. Well, you could say that about everybody. I mean, the perfect yeah. example for Glab right now is, is you know, someone like Andrew Adam Jones or Andrew, Andrew Jones. Jones. Andrew Jones. I look at. I think he's he's trending in the right direction. I think I think he is a Hall of Famer. You know, yeah. um, and and I think it's it's. You know, I think part of part of it is, and I'm with you because I I used to feel that way, and I'm not saying I don't still feel that way to some degree, but. You know, it's like, well, if a guy wasn't a Hall of Famer when he came on the ballot in the first few years, why is he a Hall of Famer 15 years later? You know, his numbers haven't changed. Um, you know, what, what's the difference? And, and I think, uh, you know, part of it is, yes, who's on the ballot with them. I think that's part of it. But I think, too, part of it is uh, particularly more so nowadays. 
um, you know, the game's being looked at a little bit differently and you have all these metrics that people look at and, you know, it, it's getting harder and harder to look at the, you know, guy, well, a guy hit 500 home runs, he got 3000 hits or he got 300 wins. I mean, those days are gone. Uh, so, you know, that's not the end all be all in the game anymore. So you have to come up with other measures to, to show that a guy, you know, was, was the cream of the crop in his era. And, and I think Andrew's a great example of that, right? I mean, he's, you know, he hit a ton of home runs. He had a lot of, you know, a ton of RBIs, but you know, when you start looking at his defensive metrics, I mean, was there anybody better in the game? Um, you know, look, I, I've, I got the chance to play with him. I, I play with Marquise Grissom, who was a great center fielder, Otis Nixon, Carlos Beltran, and, and Andrew was the best of them all. And, and um, you know, when you talk to people, historians of the game, you know, the only other guy that I hear mentioned as being that good of a center fielder or, or, you know, certainly better than Andrew is Willie Mays. So, you know, when you're talking about only that guy being better than you, um, that's pretty good company. So, you know, I, I think that Andrew's defensive metrics are the things that are starting to get more and more appreciated. Uh, but, you know, you can't lose sight of the fact that he hit a ton of home runs and he uh, drove in a ton of runs too. So, you know, I think the problem for Andrew may have been that he was really good for a, for a 10-year span and then started having some injuries and kind of fell off pretty quickly. Um, but still, that, you know, those 10 glow gloves and those defensive metrics for Andrew, I mean, he's that in and, in and of itself is, is Hall of Fame class because it's, you know, it's as good as anybody that's ever played the game. Yeah, it's a good call. I always feel like, too, like if he got called up at 23 and went 23 to 33, and they're like, yeah, you know, his last few years, like he aged okay. But because he got called up at 19, it's like yeah. he's almost getting punished for that. Because it's not like, oh, he had a few good years <laughs> <Yeah>. of success. <laughs> like you said, 10 years. It's not like, oh, you know, I had five years and we just got to look at that. But like, no, it's 10 plus years, a lot of homers. So I'm with you. I, I think there's definitely, you know, strong consideration there. It should be a lock. Um, one more on that front. Is it, do you encounter any awkwardness with the PED era and the conversations now as, you know, there's players that obviously we know, right? Like Bonds, Clemens, et cetera, in terms of their numbers and what they've done on the field. And we've had some of those guys on this show, Maguire um, recently too. Numbers-wise, they fit. But now they move on some of those guys to a veterans committee and I'm sure there are guys that feel very strong about keeping players like that off. And you have to navigate, you know, those conversations, right? Because now it becomes these committees that have meetings and converse about it versus writers that do their own thing. Yeah, I mean, I think there seems seems to be um, a, a very high level of integrity, so to speak, as it relates to, you know, some of those guys, Barry, Roger, uh, McGuire. Um, and, and listen, I've, I've had a ton of conversations with guys Hall of Fame weekend, and I can tell you this, the older players are much more adamant about it than I think me or my generation are. And, and that's not to say that um, I dismiss it or I'm okay with it. I'm not. I just think that it was such a part of our generation that you dealt with it. You know, it, it was part of what you had to deal with. Um, I think for the older guys, uh, they view it much more differently. Uh, I think uh, I've heard a number of, of older Hall of Fame guys say if you know any one of those guys got in, they won't be there for that weekend. Um, and, and I think that's a real thing. Um, you know, I think you saw you saw the concern still for 
I think all of those guys, as it came to this year's Veterans Committee vote, and none of them got in. Uh, so I think there's a strong feeling amongst players um, as it relates to the integrity of the hall and trying to protect all that. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's going to be, it's going to be interesting to, to watch moving forward. Um, you know, like I said, I think for me, uh, again, I don't, I'm not dismissing it. Um, it's just, you know, it, it was what it was, uh, in our era. And, and it was something that we had to learn to contend with and get around and pitch to and all of those things. But, um, you know, I, I, I don't, I don't have a strong feeling one way or the other. I really don't. I, I mean, I'm, I just think that so far it, the people that are in charge of voting have gotten it right. Okay. That's fair. Mm-hmm. But what if you're on the veterans committee one day and they come to you and say, Hey, Glav, you have a vote. I mean, it's, it's just an awkward situation as a player. I mean, you played through it. I played through it. It's an awkward situation because you know how good those guys were, to, you know, however you feel about it, but I, I get it. I mean, it's the same way with me. I think over time our, 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 our thoughts and our, our ideas will change as we get mm-hmm. older and as we get farther away from when it actually was going on as a player. Yeah, I know it is. It's hard because to your point, I like all those guys. I know all those guys. I like them. Um, you know, they're all great players. But again, I understand um, the, the problems associated with them. And, uh, you know, I'll, I'll sit here right now and I'll be perfectly honest with you. I could, I could be persuaded if I got in a room with a bunch of veterans and, and, you know, they all had just compelling arguments as to why they could, they should be in, then I would be open to having the conversation, you know, tell me why, sell me on what you're saying, you know, tell me why. Um, until then, I still think it's right that they're not in. Um, but again, I can be persuaded. Let me hear your argument. All right, so let's finish with what we've got going on in the current game. And, of course, there's been some rule changes this year, including the pitch clock, which has definitely worked in terms of keeping the pace going better than it has in a long time because people kind of lost track of of how slow the game got. Yeah, but Glavin, Glavin trust me, Glavin loves it. You know why? Because he's doing games. Exactly. And, yeah, I did a 14-2 to two game. And it was two uh-huh. hours and 30 minutes. I'm like, thank you for well, the pitch clock. It's the greatest invention ever. But also even like in, you know, in, in the mid-90s, games were not like they were in 20, I mean, 22 even, right? Like we, those games had more crispness to it, aside from the time of game. It's like watch a game back. It's not like you have to go back to like, oh, the 1930s. Like go to the 90s, you know, even the early 2000s, Glad. And the game just had this pace to it that got lost. I don't know where I saw it or why I saw it, but um, I saw a box score from the 92 World Series against Toronto um, recently, and maybe because I was doing something up in Toronto. And, and I looked at some of the box scores and the time of games, even in the World Series, you know, where you have an extra long innings, inning breaks and commercial breaks between innings. Um, even, those, even those games in the World Series that year were under three hours, and under three hours pretty handily. Um, you know, and, and it just got to the point where, to your point, games were taking so long, but it wasn't even so much the length of the game. It's just that the notion of there's nothing going on. There was so much dead time. Right. And, and I think that a lot of it, a lot of the perception of the dead time had, had everything to do with, there was nothing going on in the game. Right. For the last few years, it's kind of been the three outcome game, walk, strikeout, home run. Uh, there's no stealing bases. There's no small ball. There's none of that stuff. Right. And, 
uh, and the, and whatever action was happening was boring. And then there was so much action in between the action or so much dead time in between the actions that the games just drug on. And, you know, I don't think I don't think a lot of people realized it until we started with this pitch clock and you see how much dead time in between pitches is eliminated. Right. And, and I don't know if there's any more action or not, but there's the perception that the game is crisper. And I don't think that I think that's a great thing for baseball and for fans. Right. I've always said you can have. You can have an 11 to 10 game that just feels like it's boring and dragging on, and you can have a one nothing game that feels super crisp and exciting, and it has everything to do with what's happening in between pitches. And if, if you're constantly watching pitchers walk around the mound or you're constantly watching hitters fixing their batting gloves and you know there's 30 seconds in between pitches, an exciting game becomes boring. I'm sorry. It's just you know, you're like, come on, let's go. Make a pitch. Let's do something. And I think that's what the pitch clock has done. It's taken away all that dead time. It's given the game, uh, the, 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 the fan, the sense that the games are, are crisper. They definitely are faster. There's no question about that. And I think that's a good thing. I mean, I think, it, look, we're, we're in an era now of, um, you know, trying to, trying to maintain people's attention is a tough thing, right? I'm sure we all see it with our, with our own kids. I know I see it with my kids. Trying to maintain my kids' attention you know, for more than 20 minutes is not an easy thing because they have so many distractions nowadays. And those are the people that are sitting in the seats uh, with ball games. They want to see things going on. They want to have the perception that things are happening. And, and I think with the pitch clock, it gives them that. I think with the increased stolen bases, a uh, little bit of small ball. I mean, heck, we I saw two bunts last night in the Braves-Mets game. I haven't seen two bunts in a game. I haven't seen two bunts in baseball in two years, let alone two bunts in one game. So, you know, it again, it gives the perception that this stuff's coming back. It's more a part of the game. And I think, too, what has helped with the no shifting, the single has become sexy again, right? Not Everybody's not trying to hit it over the shift and hit it out of the ballpark. So uh, it just it just feels like there's more going on, and I think that's a good thing for baseball. I agree. More action. More action is better, especially once the action is starting. So I agree. Now, one thing – I have to ask you about is when you pitched in, in, in Maddox, you guys, you know, you had Eddie Perez set up about, I don't know, yay far off the plate, maybe a little bit far. Eh, not that far. Not that far. A little bit. Okay. Uh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, could you, uh, obviously I think I know what your answer is going to be, but I want to hear it. Would you like robo umps? Cause I'm against it for, for many reasons, but, and then also I know you're in the hall of fame and you make adjustments and all that, but how much more fun was it when you were pitching, you could get, you know, you could get this far, and you could move them, and then you could just keep moving them off, and you just keep hitting the glove. Charlie O'Brien would stick it, and they, ha-ha! You know, I mean, it has to be a little bit of a different feeling when you watch games now, and there are no corners. No, well, I first of all, I would not like the robo-ump. I, I, I am not in favor of that, whether it would be my generation or, or watching today's game. I don't want that. I mean, I, I just, you know, I think there is so much intrigue in, in the cat and mouse game between pitcher, catcher, umpire, right? Um, you know, yeah, did I get some pitches off the play? Of course I did. Absolutely I did. But it was, it was the art of making it difficult for an umpire not to call a strike. You know, if you've got your catcher set up on the outside corner and you're hitting that mitt, and now and the umpire gets, gets comfortable with that, and all of a sudden he's three inches, four inches off the plate, you hit that mitt again, you make it hard for him not to call that pitch, right? He doesn't see movement on the glove. He doesn't see movement from the catcher, you know. 
okay, that must be a strike, you know, and, and I think that was an art that pitching, you learn how to do that, right? And, 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 and you, you start to get the respect and the benefit from the umpires, much like, a, you know, a Tony Gwynn has a different strike zone than uh, A.J. Pruszynski when A.J. Pruszynski got called up to the big leagues. You know, he earned that. He, he's shown that he has that ability to know what the strike zone is. He's not going to expand it. He's not going to go outside it. If he doesn't swing, it must be a ball. You know, so that was part of the cat and mouse game, much more so in my generation, that I truthfully, I think was fun. Now, you know, in, in, in today's game, um, you know, I think what dry, it drives me crazy. And I'd be curious to see how you feel as a catcher. Like I'm much, I'm much more, uh, accepting of an umpire calling a pitch two or three inches off the corner. If the catcher actually set up there and the pitcher actually executed that pitch versus you're set up on the inside corner, the pitcher throws a fastball on the outside corner. And even though it's still technically in the strike zone, they call it a strike. Like to me, that pitch, he, that's nowhere close to the pitch he was trying to execute. And you're rewarding him for that versus he's trying to throw a down and away strike and he gets it there, but it's maybe a ball or a ball and a half off the plate. Like to me, man, that's, you know, okay. He tr- that was something he, that's almost a perfect pitch, you know? So that's kind of where I'm at with it. I, I, I can't stand, like I said, watching a catcher reach all the way across the zone for a strike. I can't stand watching a guy throw a hanging curveball, and because it, you know, it, it ends up in the strike zone and didn't end up in the seats, it gets called a strike. I mean, that that's the part of it I don't like. But you know, I mean, look for me, the the latter part of my career, you know, that changed. You know, when Quest Tech came in, um, that wasn't happening anymore, and and I kind of had to reinvent myself a little bit, and I had to pitch inside a whole lot more, and and try to get, you know, if you're getting 17 inches on the plate, right? And, and, and for me, it was, you know, three or four inches off the outside corner and, and I lost three or four inches on the inside corner. All right, well, you got to get that 17 inches back somehow, some way. Uh, and that's what I had to do later in my career is I had to shift my strike zone to where it was, you know, over on the plate, corner to corner. Uh, and the way I was getting that outside corner back on my side was I had to pitch in more and it was not an easy adjustment at, you know, 37, 38 years old, but it was, you know, I had to do it. Um, so I think that's, you know, that's part of the beauty of the game. It's you're constantly having to make adjustments and the guys that make the adjustments are the ones that stick around the longest. I agree. Everything you said, I agree with. Like, I, I love it. I used to love it. You know, you hit the glove, boom. And yeah, you get a little bit off the plate and the umpire would be like, strike. And you know, batter complain and be like, well, he hit his glove perfectly. Like you don't even move. Now every ball is Every catcher you watch is, you know. Yeah, framing city. Yeah. So, yes. I mean, it can be three feet off the plate, and the catcher's like, why didn't you call that one, Blue? You know, you're like, what is it? <laughs> it's almost offensive <laughs> yeah. sometimes yeah. the way that some catchers do it, right? Yeah. Where it's like so far out of the zone, and they're like, it's like, okay, we, we get it. Yeah. Like, <laughs> it's glad, glad, hold on. Before we let you go, I just want to give you some numbers for bragging rights. So when next time you see your boys, All right. Smoltz, when you do the when you do the game, the player's game, you can, All you right. can tell Smoltz. He was 0 for 9 off you, by the way. Maddox was 0 for okay, 2. Okay, I'm going to write these. I'm going to write these down so I have it for me. Okay, so yeah. he was 0 for 9. 0 for All 9 right. off you. Maddox 0 for 2. All right. And okay. Chipper, Chipper, Mr. Hall of Famer, 6 for 32, 188. Whoa. Yeah. 6 for 32. Huh? Wow. Yeah, 188. 6 for 32. He had he had a homer or two off of me, though. I know that. 
Well, I didn't look. I just looked at the average because because there's some guys that he, I mean there's some Astro guys with big names that could not hit Tom Clavin. Biggio oh, Brad Osmus was the worst. Brad Osmus was like so one for Brad. fifty. Oh jeez. It was oh all, but God, okay. So, so then I really did. <laughs> so then, yeah, no, you did it. So then Maddox, you were zero for one. Okay, zero for one with a sack bunt. Okay, that's fair. But you did okay. get a hit off Smoltz. You were one for eight. So you you earned oh. those silver sluggers. All right, all right. That's going to come up for sure. Absolutely. I appreciate yeah. the uh, I appreciate the uh, ammunition. That's perfect. AJ is very versatile. He is a statistician as well. I mean, this internet thing is amazing. You can find a lot of stuff out. Some you want to know, some you don't want to know. <laughs> and everything on there is true, right? Yeah, totally. Oh, totally for true. sure. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It's like the dictionary. Well, Glav, it was awesome to have you. Really appreciate the time and also just want to shout out the MLB Players Alumni Association for setting this up. And for more information on your favorite players, hit up uh, baseballalumni.com and you can catch new episodes of this show every week on YouTube or wherever you get your pods. Glad, thank you for uh, taking us back for a little bit and and pushing us forward on all of this too. Covered a wide array. We appreciate the time, man. Happy to do it. Enjoyed being with you guys.